Hey there, I'm Osman Faruqi and welcome to The Culture, a weekly show from Schwartz Media where we take a deep dive into the latest in the world of pop culture, arts and entertainment. Today on the show, we're going somewhere we haven't gone before. We're talking gaming, more specifically, the gaming industry. It's huge. It's worth over 180 billion US dollars a year. And now, partly thanks to the pandemic, it's bigger than the American film and sports industries combined. But the industry has a dark side. For decades, it's been plagued by a culture of misogyny, homophobia and racism amongst both gamers and creators. Now, a reckoning is taking place at one of the biggest game developers in the world, Activision Blizzard, the publisher of some of the most popular games ever made. Earlier this year, the state of California announced that it was suing Activision Blizzard following a two-year-long investigation into what it says is gender-based harassment, discrimination, and retaliation at the company. Now, this isn't the first time sexism and harassment in the gaming industry has made headlines, But it could be the long-awaited reckoning that the industry needs, or maybe the one that finally brings about substantial change. To find out if that could be the case and to help break down the lawsuit and why it matters, I'm joined by Ginny Maxwell, a games reporter for Screen Hub and a regular games critic for The Saturday Paper. Ginny, thanks so much for joining me on The Culture today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Ginny, there's a lot I want to get stuck into, but first, could you tell me a bit about how you find covering games and the games industry? Complicated. I mean, I love it and I find it really rewarding, but I find it really interesting to kind of learn the contradictions kind of inherent to the games industry, but also the lies that the games industry sort of tells itself, particularly I've noticed in Australian circles, there seems to be sort of equal weight placed on the idea that games are this marginalised, misunderstood, underfunded, undersupported art form in the same breath as people describe the games industry as a $160 billion international industry. Okay, so Ginny, the, the gaming industry definitely has a reputation of being a very male-dominated space. That is changing, at least in terms of who plays games, but in terms of who makes them and the people at the very top of those companies, that hasn't really changed yet. How did we get to this point? Come on in. It's almost another world here in the video arcades of America. So in the 70s and 80s, uh, in the kind of heyday of arcade games, arcades were social spaces filled with games that children, teenagers, adults, all kinds of people played. Video games are the latest craze to sweep the country and most of the world too. Millions of people are addicted to hours of gazing at electronic images on game screens and arcades and in their own homes. These games were usually made by a maximum of two people. This is the current craze game, Pac-Man. I like the little man. He's really and he eats up all the other things now. But as consoles and kind of home gaming in general uh, was on the rise, lots of developers tried to get into that market and the result was a huge glut of relatively low-quality games that were quickly made, looking to make a quick buck. And as a result, the video game market crashed 
in the mid 80s. The video game ET for Atari was so bad, the company tried to get rid of all the copies. It's rumored truckloads of that game were buried in an Alamogordo landfill back in 1983. But the video game In response to that, there were a few changes. Marketing executives decided to focus their resources on a particular demographic that they thought would have expendable income, collective sense of identity, and that was young men. Give a man an Atari game and he'll turn into a little boy. But don't worry, he'll be grown up enough to share it. One example of this is the release of the Game Boy. Introducing Game Boy. It's portable, it's in stereo, and its games are interchangeable. Game Boy comes complete with batteries and the outrageous new game Tetris. When the previous Nintendo handheld console had been called the Game & Watch, which is obviously a much more gender-neutral term. But you can help. you got Nintendo Game & Watch. That's pocket power. Historically, this was framed not as a kind of gatekeeping decision or an ethical decision, but as a financial one. But yeah, that's the bizarre history of how games uh, became primarily marketed towards men. Batteries and Tetris included? Amazing! I think that's like really compounded this sense that including women in the game space is kind of more of a favour than as a natural, normal thing. And from there, sort of the echo chamber creates this effect where men play games with men and they work with men, men in the games industry, that is, to the point where they just simply don't see the need to engage with women as people, let alone as players or as colleagues. Hmm. So those decisions basically laid the groundwork for who would be running the games industry right now, today. And we're seeing the repercussions of that in terms of toxic workforce culture and a power imbalance, particularly at the company at the centre of this current lawsuit, Activision Blizzard. Before we get into the specifics of exactly what's going on at the company, can you give us a sense of just how big, how powerful it is? Most people might not recognise the name, but they probably almost definitely know the games that the company makes, right? So Activision Blizzard is the holding company that controls five different video game companies. Each of those different companies owns several studios that each employs hundreds of people around the world. The companies that they own include King Digital Entertainment, who make Candy Crush Saga. When they bought King Digital Entertainment in 2016, they paid $5.9 billion for the company. Activision Publishing and Blizzard Entertainment, who are the two companies at the centre of the Activision Blizzard lawsuit, they are slightly separate from Activision Blizzard, which can be a bit confusing. But uh, Activision Publishing publishes and develops the Call of Duty franchise. Move up! which currently has 400 million players in their premium games and 100 million alone in their freemium game Call of Duty Warzone. Welcome to the Gulag. If you survive, you earn your freedom. 
Blizzard Entertainment has developed household names like World of Warcraft and Overwatch. And I will set us all free. So these games generate billions of dollars. They employ thousands of people and they're played by hundreds of millions, if not billions of people worldwide. Yeah, wow. I mean, the games you're talking about are without a doubt the biggest in the world. I mean, even if you're just a more casual mobile gamer, Candy Crush is something that absolutely dominates the scene. And then you've got games like Call of Duty, which I've played, and and World of Warcraft, which is enormously popular and has been for years. So we are talking about some heavy hitters here. That company... Activision Blizzard is at the centre of a workplace harassment issue that's been running for a couple of years now, but it really exploded in July when the state of California launched this high-profile lawsuit. Can you tell me a bit about the legal action? Who is involved and why does it matter? So I definitely want to get back to the fact that this lawsuit is so long-running because I think that's really significant, um, or at least the investigation and allegations go back for so long. But essentially, Activision Blizzard Inc. are currently being sued in civil litigation by the state of California following a two-year investigation into uh, workplace harassment and discrimination and retaliation against uh, whistleblowers on that discrimination and harassment. A frat boy culture. That is how Activision Blizzard is now being described here in this new lawsuit filed by the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing. The complaint singles out Activision Publishing, who, like I said, develop Call of Duty, and Blizzard Entertainment, who develop Overwatch and World of Warcraft, for having, and I quote, a pervasive frat boy workplace culture. The state agency alleges that female employees there are subjected to sex discrimination, unlawful sexual harassment, retaliation and unequal pay. The The complaint describes a work environment where women were sexually harassed, underpaid, overworked, stymied in their careers, laid off at a much higher rate than men. And all of these practices have been taking place for years. I will also say the complaint notes that black women and women of colour in the organisation experience these issues at a much, much, much higher rate than their white counterparts, even though this isn't something that a lot of media outlets have kind of pointed to specifically. According to the complaint, female employees make up around 20% of the company's workforce. The agency is saying it seeks, among other remedies, pay adjustments, back pay, lost wages and benefits for those female employees in an amount to be proven at trial. So not only are women being paid less uh, from starting salaries to bonuses to stock options and being retained less frequently, but to quote the lawsuit, Female employees are subjected to constant sexual harassment, including having to continually fend off unwanted sexual comments and advances by their male co-workers and supervisors, being groped at cube crawls and other company events, high-ranking executives and creators engaged in blatant sexual harassment without repercussions. So essentially, there's been no accountability or recourse for this kind of predatory behaviour because it's been occurring at every level of the company. Kind of the most shocking and tragic uh, example of this harassment uh, is the death of a woman who was employed by Activision Publishing. 
who died by suicide while on a company trip with her male supervisor, who she was in a sexual relationship. The complaint described pretty unrelenting and extensive workplace sexual harassment in the lead-up to her death. Ginny, these stories are extraordinarily horrific and you can absolutely see why the state of California has decided to take this kind of action. But I wonder, you know, what? I don't think a lot of people would be shocked to hear of a culture of misogyny within gaming more broadly, but generally that's focused on the fans, uh, the people that, that play games. I mean, I can even think about when I played first-person shooters like Call of Duty and Counter-Strike. As a teenager, it was an extremely aggressive environment dominated by young teenage boys. Every time someone jumped on who was identifiable in a, in a non-male way through their voice, they were just subject to relentless abuse and harassment. It makes sense that that culture amongst fans was also reflected in the industry itself. But how long have people known about this kind of toxic and pervasive culture of misogyny in these companies in particular? Oh, it's widely acknowledged among game developers that games is a very, very difficult uh, industry for women to work in. Stories like these... um, To see them laid out this clearly is shocking and is new, but I've heard stories like these uh, from a huge number of uh, game developers from different companies and studios around the world. (laughs) I don't think, sadly, anybody was totally shocked to hear these allegations, but within Activision Publishing and Blizzard Entertainment, something I found really, really striking about the lawsuit are those charges of failure to prevent discrimination and retaliation because the extent of time that this lawsuit covers is immense. Many of the charges uh, relate to events that happened several years ago. The investigation itself took two years. There were several internal reports of workplace discrimination and harassment that went either ignored or actively buried There was a mediation attempt by the state of California before litigation began. And since litigation has commenced, Blizzard Entertainment have come under fire for shredding HR and employment documents related to the lawsuit. The thing that I find so mind-blowing is the extent to which these companies seem to see themselves as genuinely being above the law. We'll be back after this break. Ginny, it sounds like the issues at Activision Blizzard aren't actually new. It's more a case of something that's been going on behind the scenes for a long time that's just now finally being taken seriously, in this instance, by the government. Is that how it seems to you? Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned having experience playing some like online shooters, including Call of Duty, and uh, kind of experiencing, you know, they're renowned for being pretty toxic and for homophobic, transphobic, racist, misogynist language being freely used over voice chat. But that's not an accident. Those platforms are almost entirely unmoderated, despite involving 
hundreds of millions of players by design. Oh my God, it's a girl. Hey, so how do you fit the computer in the kitchen? <laughs> you shouldn't be playing this game. This game is girl, is a boy game. Oh, you're a girl Jesus Christ, thanks for the fucking gamer girl. Oh my fucking god. Spontaneous, I'm single. You trying to give me those digits? If you kind of go back to basics and consider how a person who cared about or had ever experienced discrimination or harassment would design a social game. The, the very fundamentals are completely different. So I think these things kind of do mirror each other. Yeah, and certainly a lot of those things you're talking about, the misogyny and racism in the online gaming space, particularly when it comes to those first-person shooters like Call of Duty, are a big part of why I don't play them anymore. I remember trying to get back into that during the start of the pandemic last year when we had nothing to do, and I just found it so grating and felt like everything that we'd moved forward on as a society in the last, you know, decade or decade and a half just hadn't happened in those gaming spaces. But I guess there's an element to this, as I'm hearing you talk about this, that clearly extends beyond just the gaming industry. I mean, when we're talking about bullying and misogyny in corporate cultures, that goes throughout every industry. And even more specifically on the tech side of things, we've seen this emerge around conversations to do with social media companies like Facebook, YouTube, and and Twitter, where people who create those products are often not even often, overwhelmingly not the people that receive the the kinds of toxic harassment and abuse on those platforms. But I think what stands out to me about this story is gaming did have another moment of reckoning like this back in 2014, uh, specifically around a culture of misogyny within the games industry. That was, of course, Gamergate, which felt like it could have been a watershed moment for the games industry. And judging by what you're talking to me about today, it kind of wasn't that. But before we unpack it, can you just tell me a little bit about Gamergate, what led to it and what the discussion around it was? The topic of discussion today is Gamergate. 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 And now the women calling for change in this multi-billion dollar virtual industry are facing a very real backlash, including death threats. So essentially, Gamergate was a harassment campaign that particularly targeted women and trans people in games media and in the games industry. It began with the suggestion that a developer had only had their game reviewed because they had slept with someone at a games publication and spiralled out into a campaign of violent threats, rape threats and death threats against a huge number of women and trans people in the games industry. What happened during Gamergate is you saw a lot of factions of different types of game consumers band together, sometimes in really toxic and abusive ways against people that were perceived as destroying the gaming culture. So from the beginning, Gamergate supporters have claimed that this is about journalistic ethics and about supposed corruption in the gaming industry, but it has originated as and it's continued to be about sort of undermining women in the gaming industry. 
Gamergate organized on the same underground message boards that would later lead to the QAnon cult. They sent their fans to attack developers like Zoe Quinn, Brianna Wu, and others like them. And so did it lead to any kind of broader conversation amongst gamers, the media, the industry themselves about the culture that I guess had been festering for so long and had now bubbled into the surface? I think on a surface level, yes. There were some battle lines drawn, and I think to some degree, you know, there were particular uh, games publications, for example, that released statements decrying Gamergate, stating that they supported women, that they, you know, supported marginalised people in the game space. But I have the somewhat cynical view that Gamergate really proved to a lot of abusive and harassing men that they could really just get away with saying anything online regardless of any basis of fact, uh, if they wanted to hurt someone and that there would be no repercussions. So I horribly have a, yeah, a much more cynical view. I mean, I think you say it's cynical, but I think the fact that seven years on from that moment, we are now seeing this lawsuit suggests that it wasn't quite the tipping point that a lot of people maybe thought that it would be, right? Yeah, I agree. I think um, it's really unhealthy to, or maybe unrealistic to hope for tipping points, because I don't think these big moments, I I think that's often not where the big change is happening or can happen. We'll be back after a short break. Ginny, what do you think the outcome of this particular lawsuit could mean for the wider games industry? Are there any clues based on the response to it so far? Blizzard Activision have publicly refuted some of the allegations contained in the lawsuit, and they've said that they aren't reflective of the company's current culture. But, I mean, the case is still ongoing, right? I am very hopeful that the Department of Justice will get involved in the coming months or years, given that there seems to be like pretty significant obstruction of justice occurring or alleged through, you know, tampering with and destruction of evidence. But I think there have been some pretty high profile firings in Blizzard Entertainment in particular. And so who are some of those key figures who have left the industry as a result of all of this? Uh, Well, Overwatch level designer Jesse McCree, for whom the Overwatch character McCree is named, uh, has been fired uh, due to harassment allegations against him, which is also, as a side note, has a really interesting effect on the game itself. Yeah, have they changed the name of that character? They have. Uh, They've just announced they're changing the name of the character, which means they need every character to re-record their voice lines that mention McCree's name. Wow. Um, Alex Afrasiabi, who was a senior creative director on World of Warcraft, uh, every year Blizzard Entertainment have an event called BlizzCon, which is sort of a big social company party. At BlizzCon, he had a hotel room that he called the Cosby Room that had a big picture of Bill Cosby in it. Uh, where it is alleged that he would 
bring women in order to harass or assault them. And even HR team members, apparently, were part of a self-made group called the BlizzCon Cosby Crew. Basically, every BlizzCon, they would get a room together and they would call it the Cosby Suite. And they would basically go there to drink a ton and party. There are actually photos on several senior Blizzard executives social media accounts of them in this room in front of the portrait. From his Facebook, we see a particularly odd group chat. Dave Kosak is gathering hot chicks for the cause. Alex jokes that... So it's undeniable that the room existed and that the portrait was there. Afrasiabi has since been let go from the company, but not for years. So that juxtaposition is interesting, right? We see, historically, a total failure to act on allegations of discrimination and harassment versus now there is finally some movement. Do I think it's mostly saving face? Absolutely. But I would say that a few years ago, huge PR teams that oversee these things wouldn't have seen that as a necessary step. And so I suppose it's a difference that they do now. Yeah, I think you're right. It it does sound like all of this is kind of stepping in the right direction. But even though, I mean, it's 2021, it does feel like we need more than a couple of steps. These issues, this idea of video games being created by boys for boys, it does seem so fundamentally baked into the DNA of at least mainstream gaming culture still. You also cover the indie gaming scene a lot, which does seem you know, from my more layperson perspective, to be more diverse and inclusive, both in terms of the creators and the players. Do you think that's ultimately what it will take? People just building up new institutions rather than trying to reform these older ones like Activision Blizzard? I guess fundamentally, I'm not sure if any corporate entity, which is what Activision Blizzard is, can be, uh, I don't know if there's any hope for a corporate entity of that scale. To me, it kind of seems like asking if Amazon could suddenly become a cooperative organisation. I I definitely take a bit of a billionaires should not exist approach (laughs) (laughs) to these big companies. I don't think, um, I'm not sure what it would take for the culture to change in a fundamental way. Blizzard Entertainment shredding documents doesn't give me a lot of hope for any big change anytime soon. I would say that the indie game space has created opportunities for a wider range of people to make work that reflects them and that they care about and that will speak to a wider range of people. But that's not to say at all that indies And, you know, what is indie games even? That's a huge spectrum in itself from totally non-commercial art projects to, you know, Among Us, which made $86 million last year. But it's still only game made by, I think, 12 people. Mm. I don't think, you know, indies in broad strokes are going to save the world. But I do think there's there's more variety in how games are made and there are more opportunities for people to approach the work differently. Judy, thank you so much for talking to me about this really, I think, important issue, given how big not just the games industry is and how many people 
take part in it. But even if you don't, I think it's important for us to understand and engage with what is now one of the biggest cultural pillars in our society. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. And I think you're right to say, you know, I spoke earlier about that sort of tension between games being this billion dollar industry or this, you know, misunderstood art form. Either way you see it, it's hugely culturally significant. These games affect how people see the world. And so I'm really glad we can talk about things like this. The Culture is a weekly show from Schwartz Media. It's produced by Bez Zoda and Atticus Basto. Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next week. Listener.